Good morning, dear intriguer. Did you know North Korea once stole $300 million worth of Volvos from Sweden? That's right, $300 million of Volvos. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss President Biden's new executive order on investment in China and an Italian plan to rein in banks. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited today because I am a huge hip hop fan. I have been since I was a, a little kid. Are you? Yeah. And today is the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which was founded in the Bronx, started in the Bronx on this day in 1973. Are you a hip hop fan? Uh, look, I don't want to say I'm a fan. I like it. I, I don't know a hell of a lot about it. Okay. But um, I'm, I, and to be honest, my first reaction is I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's 50 years old. I, I kind of assumed it was going to like mid 80s or something like that, you know, with, um, you know, like the early days of kind of Grandmaster Flash and stuff. I didn't really realize it went all the way back then. Well, we'll have to come back to this. I want to hear more about your favorite music genres, but we got plenty of shows to cover this. As for this show, I mean, I think, I think generally... People will know by now this is designed to, to peel back the layers on some of the biggest headline grabbing stories happening around the world and, and even sometimes cue people in on stories they may have missed. And you've got a headline grabber to start off with. So what caught your eye this week? Yeah, you, you won't be very surprised to know that it's got uh, something to do with China, my my pet topic. Um, and it's uh, the news that President Biden issued an executive order on uh, Wednesday that prohibits Americans from investing in you know, some of China's key national security industries. We're thinking like military, um, surveillance, facial, tech, uh, facial recognition technology, cybersecurity, th these kinds of areas. Um, so this executive order, which for folks who don't know, is kind of like a presidential decree. It's not technically a law. It's like a, it's like a regulation, but it hasn't been passed by Congress. Um, and it prohibits US investment in, in, you know, advanced semiconductors and quantum computing. We've, previously covered, Ethan, you and I, the US kind of ban on um, American-made technologies going into semiconductors. This kind of extends it more broadly. Um, and it requires American investors who might have invested in this kind of stuff um, to notify the federal government before investing in other types of semiconductors or artificial intelligence technologies. Yeah. Why do you think, uh, and I think the answer to this might be sort of self-evident, but why did the Biden administration do this. I alluded to it. It's that idea of they're, they're trying to sort of, I don't want to say halt Chinese progress, but at least slow it down so that they can, that Americans can maintain this, what they call an edge or, a, you know, a technological gap over, over China in critical technologies. So I think the worry is that China is catching up too quickly to American capabilities because they are, you know, depending on who you ask, stealing, innovating, appropriating, copying, whatever whatever you want to call it. But they're closing that gap faster than America can kind of um, innovate itself. Um, you know, and, and this is the kind of tech that could decide which economy kind of has the upper hand over the long term. Um, and more sort of importantly, I guess, for this executive order, which kind of military will have the advan uh, advantage in a case of a war. You know, as I just said, US is kind of several years ahead of China in developing technologies like semiconductors. I think we covered that if there was no ban on semiconductors, China was expected to catch up in the next couple of years. And this ban, people say, will push that out to kind of like the late 2030s and buy, kind of buy time, right? Yeah. 
and how is China responded to this? Well, I mean, it's no prizes for guessing that they they don't love it. Um, there's no official policy response, but they kind of geared up some of the Chinese media um, outlets to sort of, you know, call it blatant um, economic coercion and technological bullying. It, very, very standard stuff from them. Um, you know, I will say from my time in China, Australia never did anything like what America's doing right now, but we kind of brought in foreign investment controls inbound to Australia from China. We brought in controls while I was there um, and it was all the Chinese wanted to talk to us about. So they watched this stuff super closely. So you can expect that they are, they've watched this, they've noticed it. And, you know, I would expect a fairly, um, angry response in the near future, but whether they'll take kind of like a, an overt policy response, I'm not too sure. Right. And this is pretty bad timing for China, given the economic data that we, we covered on the last show that's come out. You know, the, totally. They're in a deflationary economic moment. Exports are falling. And we'll, I think we'll get back to what this will mean for their exports and whether, you know, Americans, Westerners will be interested in investing in China. But, you know, how have other American allies responded to this? Or do they seem like they're interested in hopping on board? Yeah, I, I, it's been fairly, again, it's, this is fairly hot off the presses. So it's a little early to kind of really um, say for sure. I think the UK has hinted that um, they may be interested in kind of following America's lead. I'd be, I'd be kind of surprised if they didn't do something along those lines. Um, the, the EU has expressed concern over this issue. Um, you know, the, the idea that China's kind of economic and commercial power is so tightly blended with its military uh, military kind of spending, I would say. Like, it's, you really can't separate the two. They're all run by the state in China, right? I mean, right. if you think- You think you're investing in a private commercial semiconductor company, and it turns out that those semiconductors are going to build high-tech fighter jets for the Chinese military. Exactly right. That could be used directly in a conflict against- the country that you're investing from. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's going to be an issue that the EU is going to have to work out internally. There's been some disagreements on China policy that we've covered again. Um, you know, von der Leyen and, and Macron, when they both went to China uh, earlier this year, for instance, um, I think the EU has is kind of adopting a watching brief. They've said they'll uh, keep close contact with the White House or they use words to that effect. So um, it's all part of this idea of de-risking, which actually von der Leyen, I think, was one of the first politicians to use that term over decoupling. So this is kind of an extension of that de-risking. So you'd have to expect she's broadly in favor of it, whereas Macron might not be much. As, as, as much in favor, but that's me speculating. John, how have uh, American companies and investors responded to this? I mean, for decades, we've known that American investors are really excited to do business in China. Has this changed? Yes, it's changed is the short answer to that. I think it's very important to remember this is bipartisan. We talked briefly about executive orders being popular because you don't have to get anything through a traditionally pretty deadlocked Congress now. This is one issue where Congress was moving anyway. Um, I've read a bunch of quotes from con congressional leaders um, who were kind of saying, actually, what Biden did didn't go far enough. Um, you know, there were too many loopholes. So, Well, can I stop you on that, John? Yeah, please. Can I, can I ask you an aside from there? I mean, so it, it's fa it's been fascinating to watch the Biden administration approach its China policy, sort of dovish in the way it speaks and incredibly hawkish in the way that it makes foreign policy towards China, unlike its predecessor, unlike the Trump administration, which was incredibly hawkish rhetorically mm. and a lot more dovish in making policy. I mean, so the four options that I'll give you, are they responding to, to real life changes and conditions on the ground? Is it politically expedient for them to be tough on China? 
is this Joe Biden? Is this just the, the guy he is? Uh, and what's the fourth option? I can't remember the fourth option. We'll start with those three. Okay. Uh, the answer to the answer is yes. Um, I, I, okay. <laughs> you know, less glibly. Um, yes, things have changed on the ground. I think um, it's maybe maybe not like fundamentally changed, but people have become more alive to what's going on in China and given up the age old kind of hope that China will liberalize and become you know a, a, a steadfast ally. There's a real understanding from the top through to, I think, the bottom of politics in the US that China is not going to be a reliable friend um, and ally anytime soon. So the reaction then, I think, becomes perhaps arguably not uh, necessarily uh, proportional, and that's the political angle of it. You know, there's a lot of political points to be scored here if you can wedge your opponent as kind of too dovish on China because, you know, that that that's something you don't want to be seen to be in American politics. I, I would say that Biden has been harsher on um, China in, in substance than his predecessor Trump, which is probably why this is such a bipartisan issue at the moment. John, last question. You said that this was responding to a substantive change in China's behavior. You hinted that it might even be really good politics. But the question is, is it good policy? Could this backfire? Short answer is, yeah, it really could backfire. I think we have already talked about it earlier this year where I'm I'm worried about all of these points of um, previous interdependency, like when China needed the rest of the world to achieve its aims. Getting rid of the leverage that the rest of the world ha- has over China just means there are fewer points of ag- uh, areas of agreement, reasons to come together. You know, for example, semiconductors are the best example of that. Now that China um, has been cut off from the Taiwan's kind of, you know, very advanced chips, um, they're focusing on trailing edge chips, which is the kind of stuff you find in cars and washing machines. And to quote from The Economist, they said in 2019, China made a fifth of these trailing edge or, or dumb chips. Um, which go into everything from washing machines to cars and aircraft. By 2025, China will produce more than a third. So we're we're almost trading, uh, you know, cutting them off from advanced chips for an over-reliance on other chips in the future, which will, you know, bring up plenty of other problems. So, yeah, it could backfire. Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer, recorded through a Best Buy microphone, and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So it's my turn to share a story that caught my attention this week. And I was lucky to write about it in the International Intrigue newsletter a few days ago. So I have a bit of a head start. Uh, First, John, let me ask you this. Do you have your money in a bank? Uh, I do, yeah. Good. Okay, that's that's good. Not the bank of under the mattress. I, a, a real, <laughs> honest <laughs> bricks and mortar bank. Yes, I do. That, I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of my last question. I was I was asked by your financial advisor to check in. Okay, on you. okay. <laughs> no, just, just checking in. Yeah. Well, okay. Second question: What's your APY? I mean, how much interest does the bank give you for your deposits? Um, I'm ashamed to say I don't precisely know. Um, but it would be probably between uh, about one and two percent. I know, I know that it doesn't give me anywhere near the interest rates you hear in the news. <laughs> right. Yes. One one to two percent would be quite high. I mean, so you, you hinted at it there. 
it was a tumultuous year for for banks. We had the three bank mm. failures in the U.S. Silicon Valley, Signature, and First Republic. There was the one near failure of Switzerland's Credit Suisse. But for those that survived that turmoil, times have been really good. I mean, you mentioned high interest, high global interest rates mean that these banks can charge a lot more for loans to prospective home buyers and small business owners, and they've done all that without passing you or me any additional earnings uh, for the keeping our money in the bank. And they've instead rewarded shareholders. So that makes me pretty right. angry. I imagine it makes you pretty angry. Well, it's it's frustrating because I know if I went and tried to get a mortgage, it'd be sort of like six, seven, eight percent probably, if, depending right. on my credit rating, which you know I'm not going to tell give any hints as to that but like yeah so that there's obviously a huge a huge spread there exactly and and that frustration carried into uh, the Italian government this week uh, which announced a plan to issue a one-time 40% tax on Italian banks quote excess profits the, this this net interest margin between what they were charging uh, loan takers and what they were paying out to depositors. That's interesting. I, um, I trust the Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but how, how, how much money do they want to get through this tax? Is it kind of just like a penalty, the idea of like, oh, that's not fair? Or is are, are they raising this for a purpose? Um, what, what's what's the idea? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they see this. I mean, we can get into the politics quickly. It's, it's a fairly populist government. They see this as a political slam dunk. Right. Uh, but it's also to raise, raise funds. I mean, the Italian government estimated that it could raise up to 3 billion euros. Um, some private analysts said it could be closer to four and a half billion euros, and they want to use this money to help mortgage holders address those cost of living concerns and help small businesses address, uh, you know, cost of business concerns. Plus, the the, the champion of this bill, uh, uh, Matteo Salvini, who's the deputy prime minister and the minister of transportation. He has a lot of big ideas, sky, pie in the sky projects. He wants to build a bridge. Big thinker. Big thinker. He wants to build a bridge <laughs> from the Italian mainland to Sicily for about $20 billion. It would be the, the world's largest suspension bridge. It's interesting. But I, I think also by issuing this one-time levy, the government thinks that it might be able to force banks to change their behavior and, and ultimately return more to poor depositors like you and me. Right. I, if I had to guess, that sounds like it'd be a fairly politically popular policy with kind of everyday Italians, but I imagine less so with the banks. They are fighting this, I, I presume. Yeah, they were, they were, I mean, it was a surprise announcement and they were just utterly shocked. There was a, I saw an analyst in the Financial Times a, a, in, in the most Italian way say something, it was jumping out of the page. The quote just, it, I could hear him saying it. He said, you don't do this. You do not do this. You don't surprise banks with a surprise tax. And, and the markets were spooked too. I mean, bank shares plummeted the next day. Banks lost 10 billion euros of market cap, which if you compare to the amount of money that the government was planning to raise, 3 billion euros, uh, something doesn't quite uh, add up. And and the market scare ultimately forced the government to backtrack some of the plan. And they, they ended up capping the tax at 0.1% of a given banks assets um so still they plan to go ahead with it but right. at a lower level i mean you will have to the next time we have valentina on in my place you'll have to ask her whether this is standard kind of policy making in italy i know that in in australia in the u.s like uh, announcing a a policy like that without you know consulting very widely with everybody it would be would be uh well i guess 
it, it's not done. So I don't know what it would be, but um, is it, are we seeing it elsewhere? Is like, is this kind of standard or is this just Italy kind of going its own way? This is happening all over Europe. I mean, last year, Spain issued a 4.8% windfall tax uh, on its banks. Lots of other European countries are doing the same. Hungary, the Czech Republic, Lithuania, even Estonia, who I, you know, praise for, for great governance. Uh, they see this as the right time to be raising money from from banks. And the logic is clear. Banks are private companies that make a lot of money and they often offload their costs to taxpayers when when times are tough. Yeah, bailouts, right? Bailouts. So these taxes are politically popular and they're a really good way to make a buck, especially when governments are so strapped for cash, you know, which they've been since the pandemic. Revenues are just not keeping pace with public spending. We've got big challenges. We've got climate change. We've got, uh, you know, these, these European governments see China as a challenge. They want to boost their military spending. Where's that money going to come from? Banks are a good bet. Yeah, let, let me play devil's advocate for a second. If I was a bank CEO, what I would say is, okay, you're taking this cash from us. That's We're just going to change how we run our business now, which means we're going to make fewer loans and we're not going to fund the businesses and the people who we, you know, that we're the glue of the economy. So you're actually hurting the economy. Is that is that a fair pushback? 100%. Yeah, that's exactly what they say. They say, we make loans. That's how we make money. And, and loans aren't just good for us, they're good for everyone. They help the economy grow by you know, allowing companies to invest in new technologies and add new jobs, letting homeowners invest in their futures. And if banks are now worried that a big chunk of their profits will be taxed, they might make less of those you know, economy-driving loans. Plus, the banking sector is already on, on steady footing. We saw uh, Moody's downgrade 10 US banks uh, earlier this week as well. By pulling money out of the system, it could weaken it further and, and make it more likely that ultimately some smaller banks would fail and the government will have to intervene. And round and round we go. And round and round we go. Well, I look forward to uh, bringing you around another time, John. Thanks for coming on. Cheers, Ethan. In other news today, a top candidate in Ecuador's presidential race has been assassinated in a suspected gang-related crime, and the World Bank suspended its lending to Uganda after the country approved a harsh new anti-gay law. All of that and more in the International Intrigue newsletter today, so be sure to give it a read. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. <laughs>